Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the realms of non-human intelligence. My guest is Sean Esbjorn Hargens, who is Dean of Integral Education at the California Institute of Human Sciences. This program is one of the only accredited PhD degree programs in the United States where one can study UFOs and other anomalous realities from both a scientific and a humanities perspective. Sean is co-author of Integral Ecology, Uniting Multiple Perspectives on the Natural World. He is co-editor of many books, including Metatheory for the 21st Century, Critical Realism and Integral Theory in Dialogue. Integral Education, New Directions in Higher Learning. Dancing with Sophia, Integral Philosophy on the Verge. He has also published a fascinating paper we'll be focusing on today called Our Wild Cosmos, an Introduction to Exo-Studies. Sean is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, likewise, Jeff. It's wonderful to be on this end of the process after watching so many of your interviews for many years now. Well, you're doing fabulous work taking UFO studies into academia. And I have to say, not just UFO studies, you're looking at the whole range of what I guess we could call entities, non-human entities. But I think one would also want to include in the matrix that you've created things like Ascended Masters. I mentioned that because I just released a, a video on Ascended Masters and uh, got a lot of blowback from people who think it's just New Age woo-woo. But you have put together a theoretical framework within which ideas that people might just dismiss as fantasy or nonsense have a, a role, that we can begin to try and look at them through the lens of humanistic and scientific culture. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I focus on UFOs is because there's such a great kind of entry point into the paranormal and just a, a wide range of weird experiences. And when you really look at the UFO phenomenon, it really includes everything from nuts and bolts to consciousness dynamics to entity encounters. And so you kind of get the, the full kind of spectrum of weird craziness with UFOs. And so if you can kind of figure out how to talk about what's going on with UFOs, I think it gives us insight into how to understand or think about a lot of different, you know, so-called paranormal phenomenon and realities. And I'm just personally fascinated with entity encounters. They've been occurring from the beginning of you know, human, you know, humanity. And, you know, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of fantasy and projection and kind of craziness in that. But when you really listen to the experiencers who have had these encounters, 
um, it really, you know, leaves you thinking like, what is going on? And I've had my own fair share of, of encounters with what can be considered non-human intelligences. So, you know, I have some skin in the game in that sense as well. <laughs> if I recall correctly, your first book, uh, Integral Ecology, you're sort of beginning to look at the non-human intelligence that we find within our own natural world and how little we know about the consciousness of mollusks or uh, even, even dolphins that have been studied so intensively. Yeah, you know, I actually, you know, was planning on going and getting a PhD in the philosophy of biology. You know, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I tried to triple major in philosophy, psychology, and biology. And I was studying animal consciousness. I was just fascinated with, you know, what can we or can't we say about what different kinds of animals think and feel? And, you know, do they have moral agency? Do they have a sense of death? You know, like, how do they perceive uh, the sense of mind and, and other, you know, members of their own species or across the species barrier? And the more I went into animal consciousness, then eventually I got interested in human consciousness and then I just got interested in consciousness in general and just realized that we live in what I call wild cosmos that's just highly populated with all kinds of different expressions of intelligence. And so I've really kind of end up including the full range of everything we could imagine as, you know, being intelligent, sentient, conscious, reflective. Right. And even if you look at like the octopus, you know, a few years ago, a paper came out in an academic peer reviewed journal that made the case that the octopus is actually an alien species um, that arrived here on Earth through, you know, some kind of, you know, planetary process, you know, interstellar process. So, yeah, we don't have to go very far on our own planet to encounter forms of intelligence that are quite alien in very important respects. The thing about non-human intelligence associated with UFOs is that there's now a, a very strong tradition, I think pioneered largely by Jacques Vallée, saying we've got to look at fairy lore. We've got to look at the ancient accounts of human encounters with the gods. And then right away, you have a whole contingent of positivists and neo-positivists who say, this is all fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I really kind of, you know, argue for in my paper, A Wild Cosmos, is that we need a larger kind of galactic or cosmic framework to make sense of the wide variety of non-human intelligences. And you're right, Valet really pioneered, you know, this whole view that maybe a lot of the medieval European fairy lore you know, is including encounters with non-human intelligences that today we would consider, you know, extraterrestrial or alien. The more I've looked into all of this and, you know, my own experiences is that we have to be careful not to reduce the fairy beings to extraterrestrial beings or vice versa, extraterrestrial beings to fairy beings. In fact, there seem to be both types of beings as well as other kinds of beings that don't fit into those categories, including ascended masters, celestials, you know, archangels, ancestors, you know, and other kinds of more exotic forms of intelligence. And in fact, one of the reasons I got interested and kind of involved in the UFO topic in the ways that I am now is I was doing a lot of work, spiritual work with um, the fairy beings, with nature intelligences, um, you know, and as you mentioned, my first book was Integral Ecology. 
So I've always had a real passion for the natural world. And part of that passion was being perceptive and interested in the subtle intelligences associated with the natural world. But I found that the more I kind of went into the earth, if you will, you know, and encountered and explored kind of these beings and, you know, ways of interacting and communicating with these kinds of non-human intelligences, the more I went into the earth, the more I popped out into kind of a galactic context. And this was very confusing because I was having experiences that seemed more extraterrestrial or galactical in terms of the types of beings I was encountering and interacting with. And so when I would talk with the people that are, you know, working with or interacting with the fairy beings, they wouldn't want to talk about aliens. And when I would talk with the people in the UFO world, they would just interpret all fairies as just uh, aliens that were interpreted through an earlier cultural frame. And so this was very unsatisfying because I was having experiences that suggested these were you know, two categories, two different sets of beings that you you had to be careful whether or not, you know, how you compared or contrasted them. And I eventually came across some individuals who had a lifelong experience of interacting with both types of beings as well as others. And they really gave me some guidance and insight around just how complex and dynamic and diverse our wild cosmos is. And that really prompted kind of my academic and philosophical work to try and create a framework that allows us to talk about this in a more sophisticated way. Because, you know, there's some ETs that look like fairies. There's some fairies that look like ETs. Um, there are fairies on other planets. There are some ETs that have been here a long time and are sometimes thought of as fairies, right? So it's a very diverse set of possibilities. And we tend to need kind of a more complex picture to really appreciate kind of the beauty and the mystery of it all. Well, if we just look at human zoology, we have uh, cataloged, I think at this point in our taxonomies, I, I, I would say over a million species on this planet divided into what, eight or nine or 10 phylums, and the phylums are divided into families. It's all very precise. But if you want to augment that by talking about these mythological creatures or reports of experiencers and contactees, you, you would be um, multiplying that many fold. Well, and just to give another example, it's like when we often think of extraterrestrials or aliens, we kind of, you know, understandably due to the, you know, kind of Hollywood, we tend to think of, you know, the the gray alien, right? Kind of the skinny, gray, big head, short um, being, you know, and and while there are, you know, gray aliens, as it were, there are actually, you know, over a dozen different kinds of gray aliens. So, so even with just that, it's like there's a, a, a level of variety and diversity within that category that we often don't recognize. But when you really look at the research of encounters and experiencers, right, and Ray Hernandez did some great, you know, global survey work around this with the Free Institute, you know, and they found that, you know, there are, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different types of non-human intelligences and there's, you know, and other than grays, there's, you know, five major types of extraterrestrials that seem to show up across a wide variety of contexts, right? So you have the grays, short and tall. You have humans, you know, humans that either seem to be Earth humans involved with 
these beings or off-planet humans or what we might think of as galactic humans in a sense. Um, you have the reptilians, you have the mantis beings, right? So there's a lot going on in terms of the variety and types of beings that um, people encounter. And as you pointed out, you know, there's some speculation that we've been interacting with these different kinds of beings for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. I tend to have, uh, I guess, what I would call a, a perennialist attitude. I, I look at the mystical traditions of every culture, and at the end of the day, they say, you know, we're all one. So it, it seems to me that all of this exists within human consciousness. If you can probe it deeply enough, we are the aliens from my point of view. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be said about that, you know, and there's a number of really interesting theories about kind of who are these beings that does make this case that they're either ourselves from the future coming back and interacting with us in some sense, or just other versions of ourself that, you know, we're, you know, encountering in some way, either in other timelines or other dimensions. And, you know, even if you look at channelers, a lot of the really good authentic channelers will be channeling one primary being, even though there might be a few other beings they work with from time to time. And then usually after about five or 10 years of channeling that being, they often come to this realization that this being they're channeling is actually a future version of themselves, right? You know, so, so this is very interesting because it really blurs the line between kind of us and them and, you know, and it really expands, you know, or invites us to expand our sense of like, what does it mean to be human and what is humanity and, and what is the nature of these other beings that we're interacting with and in what cases are they just, in some sense, another version of ourself. Well, you have done an amazing job of collecting the literature in in this field. There are some very obscure publications that I know that you, that you cite. People who have gone around the world interviewing contactees and uh, collecting their reports, things that are not not even published in the UFO press. Uh, so, what you're trying to do is assemble all the available literature and then try to make sense of it all before discarding any of it. If I was to kind of identify a superpower that I have, it would be meta-integration, right? It's this interest and passion, this capacity to integrate a lot of data and information from a lot of different domains. And, you know, you mentioned my first book, Integral Ecology. In that book, which, you know, ended up being 850 pages long, and I co-authored it with Michael Zimmerman, an environmental philosopher, one of the main things we're doing in that book is we're identifying over 200 different schools of thought in ecology and environmental thinking. And we're trying to identify what are the insights that each of these different approaches have and how can we marshal them in light of cultivating a better relationship with the planet, right? So even in ecology, there are 80 distinct schools of scientific ecology. There's the, you know, you know, the ecological ecologists, the evolutionary ecologists, the community ecologists, the population ecologists, and the list goes on to a full 80, you know, different types of ecology. 
And those ecologists, each one has their own PhD program, their own journals, their own conferences, and they don't really talk with each other, right? And so I find this dynamic over and over again. So throughout my life, I've kind of moved from one domain to another and kind of applied this integrative meta theory approach of trying to bring in a lot of different viewpoints and different data sets that aren't normally included in the conversation, right? And this is really important in the context of UFOs or paranormal phenomena. There's this great quote at the beginning of The Hunt for Skinwalker um, where towards the end of that book, uh, the, they're reflecting on how the ghost hunters don't want to talk with the Bigfoot hunters, don't want to talk with the UFO people, don't want to talk with you know the people who've had near-death experiences. And so it's like this completely fragmented space, right? Because everyone's wanting scientific legitimacy. So they're very cautious about being associated with any other kind of fringe endeavor. But that really cripples our ability to understand the deeper patterns that are happening here. And so this is what really led me to create what I call exo-studies, which is kind of an integrative meta-theoretical approach to the paranormal with an emphasis on the UFO phenomenon for, you know, as I said, because it just kind of encapsulates everything. But yeah, when we look at, you know, the theories around what are UFOs, one of the things that I point out in the article is that there are at least 10 major different theories about who and what these beings might be. You know, we talked about them being, you know, potentially future versions of ourselves. Some people think of them as a breakaway civilization. Some people think they're flesh and blood ETs from other planets. Some think they're interdimensional, right? You know, some people think they're covert military, you know, psyop, you know, initiatives, right? So there's at least 10 major, I think, even viable descriptions of what this phenomenon might be. And I actually think all of them are partially true, right? So it's not that we have to choose one or the other. Kind of my integral approach is that I think the UFO phenomena includes so many different types of phenomena. And this is what Jeffrey Kripal calls the wastebasket problem, because you just kind of throw everything into this pile, this UFO or paranormal pile. And you know, and yet we're trying to have singular explanations for these phenomenon when I think they often require a multiple of different types of, of explanations. I know a lot of people would like to say that this or that phenomenon is pure fantasy. Some people think that the idea that uh, of, of gods in the sky, a new religion, that the aliens are here to save us, that's a pure fantasy. Or the idea that the aliens are here to harm us, that's a pure fantasy. Or that they have a breeding program, that's got to be a, a, a pure fantasy. And I think uh, if I understand your work, you're, you're saying, yes, some things might be pure fantasy, but even then, there might be uh, an ontologically real element associated with fantasy. And this is where, you know, I think the, the philosophical heritage we have in the West kind of coming out of Kant, you know, really, you know, makes a case that we can't make strong ontological claims, right? We can't talk about the noumenon. We can't talk about the thing in itself. Like the best we can do is acknowledge that reality is filtered through a variety of psychological categories 
and, and, and that we shouldn't really even try and talk about what's real, right? You know, and this is kind of postmodern takes us to an extreme, right? So you get this contrast between kind of a modern viewpoint that's very scientific and materialistic and reductionistic. And then you get this postmodern viewpoint that's, you know, very almost solipsistic in its emphasis of, you know, all perspectives are equally valid and, you know, and you can't say anything about what's true or not true. And so we kind of find ourselves kind of paralyzed by kind of the, these two options, you know, culturally, philosophically, academically. And, and so I'm interested in like, how can we build philosophical and scientific frameworks that allow us to make, you know, bold, strong ontological claims about the, the multiverse, about the range of beings that inhabit it, about these invisible others, you know, compared to kind of, the, you know, the concrete, you know, others that we find in our day-to-day life. And, you know, and so how do we do that? How do we talk about the ontological status of non-human intelligences? And in what way are they real? Or in what ways are they a projection? And so one of the concepts I develop in this, you know, area, it's the notion of mutual enactment hypothesis which is this idea that they bring something to the table and we bring something to the table and there is an an enactment, right? There is, you know, so there is an overlay of our projections, our expectations, our categories, but that doesn't erase the fact that there is actually something on the other side of what we're bringing to the process, that there is a real other. And just as we project on each other in our day-to-day life and, you know, we're navigating all kinds of, you know, racial dynamics and gender dynamics, like, yeah, it's true that, you know, there is a lot of fantasy and, you know, projection or delusion, hallucination. But again, we can't let the fact that that's part of the mix take us off point that there's enough evidence and good evidence across many categories, both kind of what would be considered legal evidence and scientific evidence, that there's something here and and that, you know, people have reported these encounters in consistent ways for hundreds of years and it's cross-cultural and, you know, if anything, the scientific viewpoint is in a minority if you think kind of at a larger, you know, time scale. You know, it's like this is just a, a more recent view that, you know, the only thing we have is what we can see with our eyes, you know, on a day-to-day basis, right? So how do we talk about these things? Because it's not clear how to talk about it because it's like two choices. Either it's a flesh and blood alien or it's a total pro- cultural projection or, you know, hallucination. Well, those choices aren't very satisfying when you've had your own experiences or when you've talked with lots of experiencers. You know that we need to have a more diversified language, conceptual frameworks to really explore how can we validate the reality of this, but it might end up being a reality that's different from how we understand reality in our kind of typical, naive, empirical way. Right. You know, and this is where imagination is really important because the esoteric traditions give us a lot of ways of understanding the potency of imagination that it's not reducible to just fantasy, that there's this thing that Henry Corbin talks about as the imaginal. So there's this actual ontological dimension to what we might think of as imaginal or imagination, right? But we have a lot of work culturally to kind of sort through this and get more comfortable with how we might talk about these things. I think it's fascinating that our categories of it's either real or imaginary may not really map reality very well at all. There could be a dozen other categories. I'm 
personally a big proponent of the idea of hyperspace and, and even what is known as Hilbert space, which is infinitely many dimensions of physical space beyond the three that uh, we have in our normal uh, maps. Yeah, I think the point you're making, Jeff, around hyperspace is really spot on. The work that's being done there and in quantum mechanics in general, I think is really important. You know, and there's a number of initiatives to integrate consciousness more fully into a quantum mechanical view of reality. And I think these approaches, you know, do offer some great insight into how to understand a, a much more dynamic, you know, multidimensional multiverse. You know, I had a, a mentor when I was a college student, Arthur M. Young. He was the inventor of, of the Bell helicopter, the first uh, uh, commercially licensed helicopter, the little whirlybird. And he was deeply into UFOs. He told me that he thought the most important thing we could be doing is looking at the reports of people who claim to have had lengthy, intimate conversations with aliens, and even people who claim that they've been taken aboard their craft and have visited other planets. And I know there's a, a very exotic literature and on that level that most people just think it must all be fantasy. But Arthur Young felt we've got to take these accounts seriously. Yeah, I really agree. And, you know, I'm really excited about the work that Jay King and Stuart Davis and um, others are doing around a, a, an initiative they started called the Experiencer Group. Um, it's an online community for experiencers, people who have had, you know, any kind of paranormal experience or entity encounter. And they're really making a safe space for experiencers to compare notes, to, to support each other, to kind of explore kind of what is the nature of these phenomenon. And, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which culturally we discount the stories that experiencers have to tell. And I think that's a, a real mistake. I think we have to really listen to them. It doesn't mean we accept their stories at face value. Though I think a lot of them we can, you know, there there is a lot of corroborating evidence. Um, there's many examples of multiple witnesses to many of these encounters. You know, so the, the whole process of making more space for these voices, I think, is, is really crucial. And when I, you know, launched a couple years ago, a year-long exo-studies program, I did it because I wanted to bring together a group of people to talk about all these ideas kind of at a, a theoretical, conceptual, intellectual level, right? Kind of how do we build better frameworks to understand these realities? But what happened was so many people in the class um, were experiencers of one sort or another that I, I started to really come to appreciate that we have to be in dialogue and we have to listen and learn from these individuals. Um, and there's a lot of patterns across them. And, and the more I started talking with my own kind of professional colleagues and my friends about some of my experiences, they started sharing with me their experiences. So I've really come to suspect that more people have these kinds of experiences than we realize, that to some extent they're a bit ubiquitous, that you know the majority of people have had at least one, if not more, paranormal experiences, a lot of them involving encounters with non-human intelligences. 
it seems to me as a parapsychologist, and I, I can speak for the whole community, I know that, uh, whenever we are in public giving presentations, people come up afterwards and say, can I tell you about my experience? And they almost always preface it by saying, I've never been able to tell anyone else before. It's, it's, it's not safe. Yeah. And the other thing that almost all of them struggle with is they ask themselves, am I crazy? Right. So because we live in this hyper materialistic reductionistic culture, you know, at least in the Western world, that people who've had these experiences have a hard time making sense of them for themselves and they end up feeling like they might be crazy. Right. They, they don't know how to validate or discern or to make sense of it. Right. And so I often find that to be one of the, the starting points for people sharing their stories is that there's part of them that doesn't know how to make sense of it. They themselves kind of doubt it. But the experience itself was so powerful and phenomenologically salient that they're left with a sense that they have to tell someone about it because they they know what happened, you know, on some level, even though they don't necessarily know exactly what that means. Right. You know, and so that's another part of this that I think we we need to find ways for experiencers to kind of make sense of their own encounters, their own experiences. And part of what you're doing, if I understand your work, is you're you're saying we have to look at the uh, psychology of the experiencer as part of the process, that some people approach it through direct experience, other people perhaps through hypnotic regression, uh, different cultural backgrounds are all going to influence what they perceive. My approach in the context of exostudies, as I was kind of pointing to earlier, is to draw on as many different fields as possible. So psychological, sociological, scientific, right? You know, and I actually identify three major categories of literature that I think we need to be engaged with to make sense of the UFO and paranormal realities. And that includes kind of the philosophical and academic literature. That includes the kind of what I call the UFO and space studies literature. And it also includes the, the esoteric um, and paranormal literature. And you're right, even just in the context of psychology, you know, there are over a major, there are over a dozen major schools of psychology that I think can help us make sense of this phenomenon, right? There's cognitive behavioral approaches, there's depth psychology, there's, you know, a lot of different schools of psychology help us understand the complexity of the human psyche. And it also helps us discern, you know, when is there false memories? When is there cognitive bias? When is there distortion, right? But that doesn't, again, mean that we throw it all out. It just helps us get, you know, discern down to the, the credible elements that we can then work with to build up a narrative around what might be going on here. There's so many biases built into the human organism. For one thing, I, I think we have a natural aversion to certain biological entities, snakes and spiders and the, the like, uh, that we find disgusting. So there's all these kind of cognitive biases and heuristics, there's psychological filters, there's, you know, like, you know, and in this sense, the postmodernists are correct. It's hard to say anything about reality in and of itself because it's so filtered through so many different layers of the human organism, psychologically, emotionally, biologically, you know, and so forth. 
that said, I feel we still can make an effort to try and make strong, bold, verifiable ontological claims about reality, you know, and these invisible realities, right? You know, it doesn't stop us from, you know, trying to make claims about, you know, the, you know, migration patterns of bears, right? You know, it's like, so if we can, you know, make strong ontological claims about, you know, the biological world around us, you know, social dynamics, economic dynamics, you know, and so forth, then why can't we find ways to do that about these invisible realms, these esoteric realities, these paranormal phenomenon? I think we can. And there's been a lot of academics and scientists for the last 100 plus years who have, I think, helped pave the way for us being able to do that. But they're just discounted so quickly and you know so often. But I think there's good work that's been done there that we can build on. And, and just really find new ways to talk scientifically and ontologically about these realities. Well, one area that we haven't touched on yet, Sean, is the whole question of the deceased and ghosts. And I think that uh, uh, amongst the, uh, the post-materialists, amongst the uh, post-modernists like Derrida, he uses that phrase, ghosts, in a very partic particular way to talk about, uh, uh, I think, uh, for example, there was a book, The, the Ghosts of Marx. Uh, <laughs> in a political sense, he feels that ghosts can be very real. Yeah, and ghosts is another great example of one of these phenomena that seems to have upwards to a dozen different possibilities, right? So a ghost can be an environmental memory. It could be a spirit guide who's coming and interacting with you. It could be an ancestor or a dead relative. Um, it could be a human being that's in another physical parallel reality. Like if you look at the work of Paul Eno, he's really challenged the community of ghost hunters to reconsider what is the nature of a ghost. And he tells some amazing stories from his case studies that suggest that many, th you know, many of the phenomena that people consider a ghost are actually flesh and blood people in parallel dimensions, right? And so, you know, ghosts are probably all of the above, right? And so when we think that a ghost is just one thing or another thing, you know, and some ghosts are actually, you know, negative entities from other dimensions, right? You know, and so, so it's very complex. And so how do we discern whether an experience of an apparition is a, a dead person, a environmental memory of a traumatic event, a being from another dimension that's um, putting on kind of the costume of, you know, another, you know, person. Like, for instance, a lot of times poltergeists, um, negative entities that are part of a poltergeist will present themselves as a young, cute child, usually like in the Western context, a, a blonde little girl, right? And it's kind of a disarming technique that they will use, right? So are you seeing a and people in those experiences will often say, I saw this a ghost of a little girl at the foot of my bed. But a lot of poltergeists and ghost hunters, that's a red flag that, okay, maybe it's a little girl, a ghost of a little girl, but it might be something else entirely, right? So this is the complexity with so many of these phenomena, whether it's ghosts or UFOs, that there's so many different viable explanations and so how do we sort through those? How do we make sense of that? Because each camp will argue that their 
explanation is the best one in most cases. And I just don't find that to be the truth very often. Like there's so many different possibilities. We need better categories of discernment to kind of think through and sort through all of that. Recently, I uh, interviewed a fellow, Charles Upton, a very nice man, former beatnik poet who considers himself a religious traditionalist. And the traditionalists are very much opposed to the postmodernists. Their, their idea is that all this postmodernism in which you, you cannot make distinctions between good and bad and right and wrong opens us up to demonic possession. And that from their point of view, these entities are, they may not all be demonic, but as he put it to me, uh, if you're swimming in shark infested waters, whether or not every fish is a shark, it's still very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and even in the Pentagon, you know, there's been some, you know, reports of people high up in the Pentagon who view the UFO phenomena as predominantly a demonic phenomenon. And these are individuals who have really strong Judeo-Christian roots and, you know, frameworks of, of making sense of things. Right. And it, it does seem that, you know, demons are another category that can explain some of these phenomenon. You know, but then some of what we call demons are just beings that we're scared of, right? And they're not necessarily demonic at all, right? You know, there's even people who make the case that a lot of reptilians, in spite of them being scary looking and more aggressive than human beings are in general, that there are a lot of good reptilians. They're not all bad, right? You know, so it gets very interesting very quickly of like, how do we sort through all of this? And, you know, and that's, you know, one of the main mantras that I have and that I, I repeat this over and over again with my students is taking things seriously, but holding them lightly, right? So how do we remain open to all of these different possibilities? How do we corroborate and, and gain, you know, evidential momentum around, you know, some hypothesis over others? Um, but then how do we hold it all lightly, right? Take it serious, hold it lightly. So for me, that's a practice that allows me to stay open-minded, but also allows me to, you know, recognize that there is a lot of fantasy, hallucination, projection, misunderstanding, misidentification, you know, that's involved in all of this as well. And so we have to take things very lightly. But just because we take them lightly doesn't mean we shouldn't take them seriously. Well, I am under the impression that you're doing very important pioneering work, Sean, and that what it could lead to is is a new world. I think of it today that it's comparable to maybe the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries when explorers were discovering whole new continents. And I think that's what we're up to in a way. I agree. You know, and I often think of it in terms of you know, we're in the process of creating a, an updated cosmology, right? You know, a scientific cosmology that makes room for these invisible realms, these, these other dimensions, and the wide range of intelligences that inhabit them. And in many cases, we can interact with, um, you know, and so I'm always interested in like, how do we expand the galactic story that we're part of? How do we expand what it means to be human and, and how might we relate ourselves in connection with all of these other types of beings? You know, so I think there really is kind of the birthing of a new story, as Brian Swim might call it, um, or a new cosmology. 
I think the indigenous traditions have a lot to offer us in terms of cosmologies that are able to contain a wide range of different types of beings. So I think there's a lot to learn from them, but I also think they need to be kind of updated and upgraded to contemporary understandings of, you know, physical reality and the cosmos. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think, you know, there are a lot of people are, are working on this project, kind of this new cosmology, as I'm calling it. And I, I think it's it's gaining momentum. You know, not everyone agrees on the, the details of it, but I think there is a growing sense that this is the process we're involved in. We're, we're expanding our understanding of who we are and who we are in relationship to not just the universe, but this wild cosmos that contains so many mysteries and so many possibilities. Sean Espiorn Hargens, what a delightful conversation. I hope that our viewers will check out your work at the California Institute of Human Science. It's got to be one of the most exciting PhD programs I've ever heard of. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. You know, and the work we're doing at CIHS is really exciting. You know, we have an MA and PhD in integral noetic sciences, which essentially is, you know, the study of consciousness through a scientific and esoteric kind of viewpoint. And within that program, we have a concentration in anomalous studies. So this is one of the few places on the planet where you can get an accredited degree studying all the things that we've been talking about today. And I know with you having a PhD in parapsychology, you're aware of how few and far between are legitimate programs that support upcoming students and academics and researchers to explore these topics. So I'm really excited about the program. And yeah, I really encourage anyone who's watching this who is interested in it to reach out to me through the California Institute for Human Science. And of course, we'll include your website in the description accompanying this video. Sean, thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And I look forward to chatting again. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.